Revolution. I am Arielle Gold. I am the national co-director of Code Pink, as well as our expert on Middle East issues. Welcome to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. There is so much going on right now as we are less than two weeks to the election. Uh, tonight we have the debates and I know myself, I'm really excited to see what happens with this um, new debate aspect where moderator, where the moderator can mute um, the candidates for interrupting each other. Will Trump walk off stage? Because um, he really is quite fond of interrupting Biden. Um, you know, it's a whole new ball game, and I, I know I'm quite interested um, to see what happens tonight. Now, as much as is going on in the U.S. election, there's there's stuff going on around the world right now, and um, in really exciting news. Bolivia has taken back its democracy after a U.S.-supported coup last year. Uh, the Bolivian people went to the polls and they voted in an indigenous socialist government. I'm so proud of my colleague Leonardo Flores, who was part of a Code Pink delegation of election observers there on the ground to see and document what was happening and to advocate for democracy. Um, what a, what a, we all need a bit of, of hope and good news right now. And this was really that. Now, on the other end of things, uh, the Trump administration just took Sudan off of the list of terrorist states. And that might sound like a good thing, but what this is really about is um, they, they were taken off the terrorist list in exchange for willingness to join the UAE and Bahrain as states to engage in a fake peace deal with Israel, a normalization deal. Um, I guess Trump is trying to stack up as many things as he can trying to win this election. And, you know, um, this is just another, another country uh, throwing Palestinians under the bus and ignoring the Palestinian struggle. And we're expecting pretty much any day now for this new normalization deal uh, with Sudan to be 
uh, announced. And the real question is when and if Saudi Arabia uh, will follow, um, which will be, you know, a really devastating blow to the necessity of a just and lasting um, situation outcome for the Palestinians who have been struggling for so long for freedom and equality. Speaking of the struggle for freedom and equality, uh, the first conversation that we're going to be having today um, is about the struggle for freedom um, for women in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is, a, this is a difficult situation for women in Saudi Arabia. Women in Saudi Arabia are treated with about the same, have about the same status as children in Saudi Arabia um, and are held under a male guardianship system where every woman has to have a male guardian. Now, even foreign women, um, are, are under a system in Saudi Arabia where they they don't have their own autonomy. And so the first the first conversation we're going to be having on today's show will be led by my colleague Danica Katovich, who runs our campaigns to boycott Saudi Arabia and uh, let Yemen live. And she's going to be talking about both the male guardianship system and the kafala system both of which hold women hostage. And she'll be speaking with Dr. Um, Hala Arasari and Bethany Al-Hadari um, about this. And Bethany is gonna talk about her own personal story um, of being held under the kafala system in Saudi Arabia. So take it away, uh, Danica. Um, I'm going to start by passing the time over to Dr. Um, Aldasari, who will be discussing the male guardianship system and how it impacts women in Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Danica. Thank you for Kudling for um, having us uh, for this discussion. I know there is a lot of mixed messages out there about the guardianship system and the reforms that took place uh, recently um, to uh, remedy some of the uh, issues or some of the restrictions uh, women faced under the system. So basically, the problem of women's rights in the Middle East and North Africa has been a persistent and measured and documented problem for so many decades. Actually, in the UN uh, Development Program, the Human Development Program uh, of 2002, three main factors contributed to the uh, problems in uh, basically um, uh, ensuing any type of development, uh, more so for women. These were uh, the lack of political freedom, uh, the problem in accessing information and uh, women's rights in general. Um, basically, because those governments are not uh, accountable governors, there is no representation, clear representation of women. Women were exclusion, excluded from historically from uh, the workforce, from leading leadership positions, from positions of influence. And this, this has, um, uh, of course, been exacerbated uh, in the last few years. Uh, because of problems uh, of the conflict in the region, because of the forced displacement, um, aggressive policies uh, in the region, of course, initiated by uh, one part of it was Saudi Arabia uh, government, 
uh, in Yemen uh, and the, the Syrian uh, civil war and the revolutions that very much like became um, a, a political side, basically polarized, politicized uh, largely uh, in those countries in Syria, Iraq, Libya, and other places. And of course, the military uh, empowerment and involvement in certain countries like, uh, uh, like Egypt. Um, so all of those issues, um, coupled with um, the austerity measures enforced by those governments, uh, because of the you know the lack of uh, equitable um, spending uh, and the um, financial consideration to women or to those who are mostly affected by those conditions, have exacerbated the situation for women. If we look at the differences between men and women in four main uh, domains. Uh, the, econ the economic participation and opportunity, the educational attainment, health and survival, and political empowerment, you will find that the Middle East and North Africa is one of the lowest uh, places uh, where women are actually largely discriminated against in um, two main uh, areas in political empowerment and economic participation and uh, access to opportunities. Uh, this has been persistent since, um, you know, the, the year that um, those types of measures uh, started to be recorded. So this is one of the most recent one. And still, despite the, the reforms that took place, uh, women are uh, lagging behind men in uh, ability to uh, access um, economic opportunities and in political empowerment. This has also been reflected in the prevalence of violence against women, in particular, the domestic violence, which are which is one of the most uh, you know, uh, prevalent problems facing women worldwide, that one in, in three women are affected by it, but more so women in places where they are not represented, where there are restrictions to women to organize themselves and lobby their governments for resources or have resources on their own, like the Middle East and North Africa, you'll see that uh, it has one of the highest prevalence of intimate partner violence or sexual violence. There are also uh, the indicators of gender gap of Saudi Arabia in 2020. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been uh, one of the uh, countries that persistently ranked lowest despite any kinds of reforms that took place, despite the fact that women in Saudi Arabia outnumber men in graduation or educational attainment or graduation from university, because that is not reflected in a real empowerment where women are able to influence and um, challenge the governments for better uh, and meaningful uh, representation. Uh, so, the, as I said, the main two uh, areas where women are lagging behind and causing women to be, um, you know, discriminated against largely uh, are the political and economic participation. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has been very active in, um, you know, um, assigning women into certain uh, leadership positions, uh, and especially positions where uh, Saudi Arabia um, country is represented uh, abroad uh, as part of the economic uh, vision to 2030 or as part of uh, introducing uh, the new leadership in Saudi Arabia. We've seen women are part now of the advisory council of the Shura. Um, they have uh, some certain licenses to uh, run certain charities, but these are all elite women and privileged women who might not be uh, appointed uh, necessarily to change the status quo of women, but more to um, basically support the, the status quo and, you know, provide this kind of legitimacy for the new regime in Saudi Arabia. Again, there are resistant barriers uh, uh, for women in the workforce, uh, as we're going to see now in the in discussion of the guardianship system. 
So to speak about the guardianship system, this is a patriarchal traditional societies in Saudi Arabia that has been indoctrinated for decades, uh, according, as I said, to uh, a most austere form of Islam that uh, really mandated gender segregation in most of the public places and education and channeled women into caregiving rules, whether in the family, they're the priority we're giving to women's uh, role as a, as a wife and as a mother, and also in, um, in the workforce. So they were teachers, women were um, actively you know, um, educated to be teachers, to be in the social services and healthcare, or less and less women in STEM, for instance, education. Um, and that caused an underdeveloped and less enforced laws and, and, and legislation. Court system has been based on uh, religious interpretation of ancient Sharia rule, uh, and that hasn't been codified into laws that really respond to changes in women roles or changes in the lifestyle. Uh, it is still very much like police, police enforcement and the, the law enforcement, the police, the, the court system is largely underdeveloped. And uh, if there were any laws, like for instance, the protection from violence uh, law that has been introduced in 2013, it's weakly enforced because of the patriarchal culture of the first responders, whether in the social services or other places. Um, education and work opportunities have been very much like restricted to certain issues. Women themselves were not really uh, passive in this kind of dynamics. Uh, women organized themselves since the 1992, um, challenged the restriction on mobility, for instance, to uh, drive their cars against a, a woman driving ban. Um, afterwards, to engage women in municipal election councils, they were not allowed to, um, to be appointed or to be part of it. Women moved online more and more to uh, demand more of accountability and uh, dismantling the, the male guardianship system. Uh, young women had different aspirations because they come from generation where it's easily, uh, they, they can easily access information, they can easily get connected online despite the restrictions enforced uh, in real life. Um, and because of that, they were the most visible women they were able to achieve more of a campaigns that uh, interacted with wider uh, groups of, um, you know, uh, of women and men, uh, they were able to reach uh, beyond their own country, basically. And this was one of the opportunities and the challenge because of that, they were not allowed to um, basically um, have any, any voice or influence. This online communities, this online access to online uh, information and, um, and connectivity were very much cut short by uh, what the government decided to, to declare as a, a betrayal. Uh, those women were very much like rounded up, they were uh, charged with treason, they were publicly smeared, um, and of course many of them remain in prison to date since 2018. Thank you so much Dr. Aldessari. Um, so with that I'm going to pass it over to Bethany. All right, thank you, and um, just want to say thank you, first of all, for having me here. Um, and I'll just say that I'm really grateful to be here in general, back in um, the States, um, free and able to speak on this without risking my life here. And it's taken me a while to speak on my own experience and my own situation in Saudi Arabia because it is so fresh and still quite triggering. For nearly two years, my daughter and I were stuck in Saudi Arabia because of these two systems um, of oppression. Um, the male guardianship system trapped my daughter and it was the kafala system that for a time trapped me. So 
um, these systems do trigger into so much more abuse that happens. And I think before I go forward, it's really important for me to establish something uh, before continuing in this discussion, especially with my background. Um, unfortunately, Saudi Arabia triggers um, unwarranted, hateful, and discriminatory or Islamophobic rhetoric sometimes. And I want it to be extremely clear going forward um, that Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy, like Hala has already said. Um, and the people are not free or represented. So they are incredibly diverse and there's wonderful. However, Saudis literally risk their lives if they criticize or diverge from the government propagated narrative, which is why we've seen several human rights activists or even people who criticized in very small ways be arbitrarily detained or enforceably disappeared. Um, so I wanted to be clear as I criticize Saudi, I am saying the Saudi government and not the people. Um, and I criticize it because I want to see it be, become better and live up to the potential that there is. Um, and obviously I want a better Saudi for my own daughter. And um, if we are not honest about some of these issues, it will continue to damage several generations of women and children. And um, the second point that I think is really important to reiterate um, in the interest of avoiding Islamophobic rhetoric is that it is not Sharia law or Islamic law here that we're talking about. Um, countless diverse interpretations of Islamic law exist as Dr. Halid Dostri has already um, covered. Some of those interpretations uphold and protect principles of human rights laws and others don't. Um, however, Saudi Arabia does have one of the strictest and most rigid and most politically motivated forms and interpretations of Islamic law that's held by any recognized nation state in the world. Um, so when we're speaking of the kafala system or the sponsorship system and the male guardianship system, it's important that you understand these as Saudi government systems and not necessarily to confuse them as part and parcel with, with Islamic law. So with the clear distinction there, I'll kind of continue to go on a bit on my story. Um, so as I mentioned, being held um, in Saudi Arabia with my daughter and initially I was stripped of custody for being too Western in Saudi courts. Um, and then I was later forced by the government, the Human Rights Commission and others, um, the Saudi government to settle with my abuser. Um, I remember reading the comments in the first New York Times story that came out on our case. Um, and a lot of people were asking, well, they have US passports, why don't they just leave? Or um, why doesn't she go to the US embassy to get her out? Or she has a PhD in international law, didn't she know better? <laughs> so I do understand a lot of the confusion. So I do want to explain here. Um, first, Saudi Arabia has arguably one of the most restrictive exit and entry procedures for uh, residents in the world. You have to exit the country also for Saudi citizens with a fingerprint. Um, and it's connected to your Saudi ID or your Saudi residence ID number. And within the system, you will have to have as a foreigner a permission from your sponsor um, or your kafil, who's either your employer or your husband, if you're, if you're a foreigner and married to somebody who's a Saudi citizen or somebody who's employed in the kingdom. Um, and they have to register that permission to exit or re-enter the country. They can revoke it at any time without you being aware. And the same is, is true for, for females that are born to Saudi men. 
Um, obviously, since Saudi women cannot pass on citizenship, the issue is very different um, for children of Saudi women than it is for children of Saudi men. But the children of Saudi men come under male guardianship indefinitely at birth. So you can't just exit the country with a passport, um, not even, you can't use, I couldn't use my daughter's US passport, doesn't work like that. Um, doesn't matter if they have a foreign passport, if their father is a Saudi citizen, um, he'll be involved in the process of, of granting them to, to exit. So I moved to Saudi Arabia after living in Tunisia and witnessing the Arab Spring. And I started doing my research uh, for my master's dissertation in Middle East and Islamic law. And I was studying um, some of the uprisings that were happening in Saudi Arabia and the Eastern province and studying discriminations against the Shiite minority. Um, and at that time, you could not get a tourist visa. You couldn't obtain a tourist visa until 2019 to get into Saudi Arabia. So I had to get a job teaching at a university and conducted my illegal human rights research on the side in my own time. That was the only way to access the country. Um, so I did meet while I was in Saudi Arabia and fell in love with my ex-husband while I was in Riyadh. Um, he was progressive. He was an atheist. He was against the Saudi government. He seemed very charming. Um, and we were planning on immigrating to the United States. That was his dream. He'd gotten his MBA in, in Denver and he was very, very obsessed with America. So I was aware of the risks. Um, but I trusted and loved this person. And um, there will be several women who have been in abusive relationships uh, that will understand that abusers are all, often some of the most charming, successful people um, in the public eye. Um, to explain the kafala system a bit and how it does enable that, it, um, in Saudi Arabia, every foreign resident is required to be legally registered under their sponsor. And the sponsor, exercises significant ownership over their life. And in the case of a marriage to a Saudi citizen or resident, um, a foreign wife will be under their husband's sponsorship. Um, that means that you would require the husband's approval to exit or enter the country. The husband is required to maintain your legal status. If he refuses to renew your legal status, you become illegal. He could deport you, he could um, make it so that you can't access bank accounts. He could refuse to get you access to healthcare. Um, and you require still for, for people under sponsorship, though it's changed for the male guardianship system because Saudi women have done such a fantastic job advocating for that, many of whom are in prison right now. But um, at any rate, uh, that remains for foreign women who are married to Saudis. They still have the same exact restrictions, those archaic restrictions that Saudi women have had from the beginning and fought to get certain rights for. Um, so again, when you are married to a Saudi citizen or um, a man who's working in Saudi Arabia, you become his dependent under his sponsorship. If you left the house without his permission, it still remains that you'd be registered as a runaway and again, subject to arrest or deportation at any time. So under Kafala's system, the employer, the husband exercises extreme control and ability to abuse without much option for legal recourse. Unfortunately, because at birth, men are considered the automatic legal guardian, when a father takes their child, for example, from the United States, if they're even only US citizens, um, once on the ground in Saudi Arabia, 
as the male male guardian that's not considered a kidnapping case and there's no form of accountability for the mothers except for leaving the country that they and their child were living in to try to take up residency in Saudi Arabia and file a case there where they are extremely disadvantaged in the courts. Um, um, I got back in December of 2019. And um, as I said, I was forced by the Saudi government to settle with my abuser and I was robbed of due process according to even Saudi legal procedures in Riyadh. Um, they left me to fend for myself and it was only, only by allowing myself to be sexually violated by my ex-husband and pretending to love him that I was able to get back home um, to the US with, with my daughter. So when I came back, I filed for emergency jurisdiction in Washington State, and the UN also filed a complaint on my behalf. Um, a court in Washington State is currently protecting my daughter and I, um, holding jurisdiction until we get a final ruling. And I'm fighting to stay with her, but since I returned, um, countless women started reaching out to me asking how I had gotten out. Um, and the numbers have started growing. So since February of 2020, um, I've alone documented and been contacted regarding 43 cases of US citizens alone. There's also been women from Saudi, from Kenya, from the Philippines, from Ireland, from England, from Somalia, from all over the world um, that are suffering. Um, but I wanted it to be clear that also um, there's currently 43 U.S. citizen women and children that have either been kidnapped or that are stuck there under kafala or male guardianship system in situations of abuse and neglect and being discriminated against in courts and um, suffering. And they've been cases from Washington State, Florida, Utah, Michigan, Virginia, California, New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Texas. So for a lot of us it's a lot closer than you think and realize and this is such a short period of time so they're staying staying silent in some of the cases we've been advocating with their representatives and with senate and working on some actions on behalf of these women um, and i would also like to ask you guys if you are u.s citizens or residents um, to reach out to your representatives and to make them aware that you know of these cases and you are aware that this is a problem that needs to be solved calling for an end to the kafala and male guardianship systems um, which are entrapping and damaging so many people and for justice for all of the women rights activists that have fought for these rights um, to be released from prison as well so Thank you so much, Bethany. Uh, thank you for everyone who tuned in. And I want to thank our two panelists today. Thank you so much for making time to be here. Um, I think this is a very, very productive discussion and conversation. I think we learned a lot about what we can do to take action. Um, I will say this is going to be on Code Pink's YouTube. So if people want to go onto Code Pink's YouTube and subscribe, it'll be up there as well. Um, if you need to review any of this information. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break.
They stole a few elections, still we the people won. We voted out corruption and big corporations. We voted for an end to war and a new direction. And we ain't gonna stop now until the job is done. Good workers, this year is our time. Now there's folks in Washington who care what's on our minds. Come on, come on, voters, let's all vote next time. Show which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? was Annie DeFranco singing Which Side Are You On? Very relevant right now. Welcome back. I'm Arielle Gold, one of the national co-directors of Code Pink, and you are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Next, we're going to be talking with Dr. James Zogby. We're going to be talking about uh, the election coming up, um, where, why foreign policy is not part of the conversation in this election, where avenues are for progressives uh, to push a Biden administration, assuming that we get a Biden administration in 2021, and um, the Arab American vote. We are now joined by Dr. James Zogby, president and founder of the Arab American Institute. Welcome, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ariel. So we are less than two weeks away from the election now, and there's so much going on. Before we get into what we're going to be talking about, what a Biden administration might look like and where there uh, might be areas to push him towards a progressive agenda, I first just want to ask your take on the election. Do you, do you feel hopeful that um, Biden will win this? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, this is an election unlike any other that we've ever seen in that uh, I'm not paying attention to polls right now. And I'm even less concerned with vote turnout. I think that all things being equal, it looks like Biden could win a fair election and very well, I think will win a fair election. But I don't think that Trump will see it as a fair election. He's been preparing the ground uh, for uh, declaring it a 
phony election, a fake election. Um, they've already gone to court uh, in several states. We're winning in, um, in the, the lower courts. In many cases, we're losing in the appeals courts. And if uh, his final nominee um, is approved, and I think she will be approved, uh, there'll be a 5-4 majority uh, so that cases that come before the Supreme Court after next week um, will be uh, an automatic uh, Trump majority. And that's worrying me because I think they're going to contest um, the vote in several states. They're going to contest mail-in ballots. They're going to contest voting procedures. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, we can win by 15 points, but a three, four point margin in battleground states, if some of the votes aren't counted because the court rules against us, uh, will throw the election uh, in Trump's direction. Then there's the problem of what will happen on election day itself. And I fear that the strategy that's being uh, adopted right now is to call up the right wing militias uh, to appear not in all polling places, but in polling places in major urban centers in battleground states like Philadelphia, like Cleveland, like Detroit, like Milwaukee, uh, to intimidate black voters. Um, the fear is that violence will ensue. Uh, we may even go to the point of having the election postponed in those cities or because the federal troops may be called in to quell the violence. Uh, right-wing provocateurs stirring up uh, you know, disruptions in these cities could cause real chaos. So I'm worried about election day and I'm worried about the days after election day. But bottom line is, I think that Joe Biden can win a vote, but I'm not sure we're gonna get a fair vote and that concerns me a lot. Now, assuming that Biden does win and assuming that we do get through this dangerous election process and we actually get a transition, uh, a peaceful transition of power. And I know those, those right now are, are kind of large assumptions. You know, so assuming we go into a Biden presidency and, and you, Jim, are somebody who works with the Biden campaign and specifically um, advocating for Arab American voices and ethnic voices in the Biden campaign. Um, you know, we see some, there was an article that just came out in, in Politico about uh, who's being floated for possible cabinet positions in a Biden administration. And they're kind of depressing. With the CEO of eBay, we have uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich, we have uh, Jeff Flake, Charlie Dent. You know, not not uh, not the ideal set for progressives. Um, what do you think a Biden administration might look like? And then follow up question to that: Where do you think there uh, will be? avenues, um, openings for progressives to push a Biden administration? Well, I, number one, there, every election I've ever been through, uh, names get floated early, uh, sometimes by the people themselves uh, to sort of get their name out there. Um, I don't take a lot of it seriously. Do I think that Joe Biden will have a progressive agenda? No, I don't. And I don't think you'll have a progressive cabinet either. Um, that obviously should be of concern. But what I do think is that the progressive base of the Democratic Party is so strong 
that they are a counterweight to whatever agenda is pursued and whatever cabinet is put in place. Uh, it will not be an easy road to hoe. Uh, it's not gonna be a, a, an automatic uh, progressive agenda being adopted. I think that that's not Joe Biden's instinct, but I do think that there are a couple of things weighing for us. One is we're in the midst of a huge national crisis. And Joe Biden, while he has talked about being centrist and and floated, uh, you know, the, the the ideas that the um, he's going to hew to the middle, and I'm not a socialist, and said things of that sort. At the same time, he said things about you know FDR and needing a response, not unlike FDR during the getting us out of the depression. Um, so I, I think that there's going to be a pull and a tug within the administration. What is good for us is that the progressive base of the Democratic Party is so strong that they'll be a part of the, the pull and push in a way that they weren't during the Obama years, where I think you know the, the, the president also had a very centrist cabinet, um, but there wasn't enough counterweight to push in the direction we needed to move in. And so we passed uh, a stimulus bill that actually ended up uh, uh, pouring literally hundreds of, of billions of dollars into the wrong hands uh, and didn't trickle down in the way that they should have. It got us out of the slump, but it didn't improve the working, uh, the, the standard, the working, uh, uh, didn't improve the standard of living of the middle class and working class uh, whose income stagnated during all those years. I, I think that there's going to be a, a, a much stronger push from Congress uh, the progressive voices in Congress who are today, I think, in a leadership role. Um, and that gives me some hope. At the same time, let's not forget that when we win this election, if we win this election, the right wing of, of Donald Trump isn't going to go away. Um, and there will be, uh, I think, even the threat of violence after the election from the, the far right. And Joe Biden's going to have to contend with that as well. Uh, QAnon's not going away. The Oath Keepers aren't going away. What was the Tea Party and the birther movement uh, have morphed into these more violent uh, formations, and they're not going anywhere either. And so I think we're going to we're in for a really difficult time as we go forward. But as I said, the progressive movement is so strong, both in its mass mobilization, but also in its elected uh, incarnation in Congress uh, and some voices in the Senate that I think there's gonna be a real push to move in a progressive direction. And I think that at the end of the day, Joe Biden's instinct, though it be centrist, um, is also going to be uh, contending with his own feeling that he's gonna to have to do something dramatic to get us out of the, the hole that we're in right now. Now, speaking of progressive- But let uh, me say you, this. We yes, have to please. Win not just the White House. We have to win the Senate and keep control of the of the House of Representatives. If we don't win the Senate, all bets are off in terms of what we are going to be able to do. We have to not only defeat Donald Trump, but defeat Mitch McConnell as well. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, now, what's been lacking in, in this whole presidential election for the most part, and you know, largely with the Biden campaign, has been really any attention to foreign policy. Um, do you think that the, the progressive movement has leverage to push a Biden administration on foreign policy when it's not um, an issue that's in the forefront right now because there's so much going on domestically? 
Well, here's the thing. It never has been. The Middle East never has been uh, an issue in a presidential contest. And that's, I think, something that we need to consider. Um, I, I always say that the, if you go back to Carter, every president is defined, has been defined by their successes and failures, mostly failures in the Middle East. And yet we, we have elections and we never talk about it. Um, wasn't talked about during Reagan's, wasn't talked about with Clinton, wasn't talked about with George W., wasn't talked about Obama. And yet in all those years, the Middle East factored huge in terms of what we were able to do or not able to do. Um, I also say this, I say that presidents are never defined by the agenda they set for themselves, but by the agenda that gets set for them by the realities on the ground. And so the Middle East today is in absolute chaos and upheaval. The defeat of America during the Iraq war so weakened us, so weakened our credibility, so left our military depleted and in, unable to, to play any meaningful role that what happened was Iran became emboldened as did uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates, as did Turkey, as did Russia, as did China. We now have a Middle East where you have multiple players in different combinations um, in, in conflicts all over that area. Uh, that's not gonna be able to be ignored by Joe Biden. And so whether he wants to do it or not, he's gonna have to deal with those, those issues, gonna have to deal with Libya and Yemen and Syria and Iraq um, and Israel-Palestine. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he may not want to talk about it and the, the, the campaigns might not want to talk about it, but it's going to be front and center on his agenda when he takes, takes, uh, takes charge of the, of the United States uh, foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy is not something that um, most voters care about, but it's something that administrations have to deal with because the threats and the challenges are so great. So he'll deal with it. And I think that, that what's, What's hopeful for me is that the progressives in Congress in particular are starting to get it, are starting to realize that we can't have unlimited arms sales. We can't ignore human rights. We can't ignore uh, the issues that confront Palestinians and Israel's uh, impunity. And so yeah, whether he wants to do it or not, he's gonna have to address all of those issues. And I think Congress is gonna play a role in setting parameters about how we can deal with them and what what issues have to be addressed first. Speaking of realities that cannot be ignored, the situation um, in historic Palestine, a one state apartheid reality. Anybody with two eyes and half of a brain cell can tell that the two state solution um, is way passed over. And you tweeted just a short while ago, Quote, I wish Democrats would stop blathering about support for a two-state solution and, quote, a Jewish democratic state of Israel. Why do you think Democrats are holding on so much to this fantasy of a two-state solution? And do you think it's, it's hurting the Democrats and specifically the Biden campaign to remain in this unrealistic um, fantasy position? The Democratic establishment right now wants two, two things. Um, they want to continue uh, to be responsive to what they know is a reality and that is Palestinians have rights. 
Uh, at the same time, they don't want to call into question any Israeli policies uh, because they fear repercussions if they do, domestic repercussions if they do. Uh, the result is, is that they've created impunity in Israel so that Israel does whatever it wants to do and knows that there's not going to be any punishment. It's sort of like a spoiled kid who knows that um, his, his parents will say, don't do it, don't do it, he'll do it, get away with it. Why not keep doing it? You know, there's no punishment. And Israel, as a result, has moved so far to the right because their, their instinct to seize more land, to build more housing, to claim the land, uh, to not put any restraint on the, the far right in, 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 in the settler movement has created a situation where they, they see, like I said, no punishment for it. And they've now become not just enablers of it, but they've become supporters of it. I mean, remember Netanyahu didn't, didn't annex not only because there was this offer from the UAE, don't annex and we'll normalize, but also because the settlers said, if you annex 30%, you're giving the rest to the Palestinians and that's unacceptable to us. So um, Democrats haven't dealt with that reality. It's too complex for them. And they would rather just, as I call it, use the two-state absolution. Okay, I'm for two states and then let, let's go on to the next question. I, I remember when the New York Times did a survey early on in the election, they asked all 18 candidates, yes, that's how many there were, uh, what do you think uh, about Israel's human rights policy toward Palestinians? Only two of them actually spoke in answer to the question. Most of them looked like uh, the cartoon character, Big Nate, when his teacher would give a pop quiz and his eyes would bulge out of his head, oh my God, what am I gonna do? And then all of a sudden, Amy Klobuchar said, oh, I support a two-state solution. Whew, can I go now? Um, you know, am I done with that? So it, it's a, it was a sort of a shortcut way of not having to deal with reality. Um, but the policies that they've enabled have made the very thing they say that they support impossible to achieve. Uh, ergo, um, it's, it's, um, um, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. Um, thank God for the progressive movement here, which is continually challenging them. And those numbers in Congress are growing. And it's not just Rashida and Ilhan uh, and Betty McCollum, but it's now being added to by new people who've just won elections in some cases, based on this very issue. I mean, Jamal Bowman won, um, Marie Newman won, Cori Bush won, and all of them ran on a progressive pro-Palestinian agenda. That has to be um, send shockwaves to the democratic establishment that says, wait, you mean I may not lose if I adopt this issue? And you mean I might win? if I adopt this issue. And so that there's gonna be a rethinking, just like there was during Vietnam when the first anti-war members won their elections and people said, oh my gosh, you mean that could happen to me if, I'm, if I don't pay attention on this issue? So I think there's gonna be a push from Congress to hold Israel accountable um, and to pursue human rights in the West Bank and Gaza and, and East Jerusalem and to not let Net Netanyahu get away with everything he's been getting away with under under, uh, Donald Trump. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, they're going to they're gonna have to get off the two-state solution, Jewish democratic state thing and start talking about realities on the ground as they are. And I, I think the progressive movement is what's pushing that. Unfortunately, I mean, it would be great if the Palestinians were pushing that agenda, right? But the Palestinian leadership is so decayed and ossified and incapable of doing anything uh, uh, that 
frankly, they're not driving the debate right now. It's Palestinian civil society that's driving the debate and folks here in this country, both progressive Jews who have been in the forefront of leading the challenge and also Arab Americans and, and Black Lives Matter activists, et cetera. There's, there is a progressive movement for the first time in my lifetime that is pushing this agenda and forcing members of Congress to, to respond. So speaking of being able to push this agenda, I, I follow the Jewish vote a lot um, as I am Jewish, but a lot of the Jewish vote, we have some sway in, in Florida, but a lot of us, uh, a lot of the Jewish vote comes out of New York, which of course um, is not a changing factor. Now, on the other hand, the Arab American vote, uh, much of that is coming out of important swing states. What role um, are they playing in this election? And, and I know you do a lot of polling of the Arab American community. Um, what are their main issues? And yeah, what role are they playing? Well, they're actually playing an interesting role right now. Uh, you're right. I mean, 5% of the vote in Michigan, 1.5% to 2% in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Those are key states that have to be won. And the Biden campaign is playing a lot of attention to this, this community. Uh, and we just did a poll of Arab Americans. And what we find is that, yeah, Biden has a significant lead among Arab Americans. But when we ask them what their important issues are, like every other person in America, the important issues are uh, health care, um, education, um, the economy, generally uh, speaking. But most important, the most important issue was race relations, which I think is fascinating that when in the overall set of 14 issues we asked them about, uh, foreign policy, Israel, Palestine came very low. Only 5% said it was the most important issue. Not unlike when you polled the Jewish community, but when we asked them then questions about foreign policy and the importance of those issues, uh, the number one issue by far was the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's uh, uh, not unlike the American Jewish community. It, it's a resonating question. It's something that like, um, yeah, I want better race relations. I want a better economy. I want this. But, oh, you want to talk about foreign policy? It's Palestine. And that that then becomes the, the driving concern. And I, like I said, I think that the combination of the Arab American concern, the progressive Jewish concern, and now the Black Lives Matter concern, um, all of whom have coalesced around justice for Palestinians and a, and a real peace settlement based on equal rights and human rights, um, that's going to make a big difference as we go forward. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. And before we end, um, I want to ask you to let our listeners know uh, where to find you. Um, if you can mention your books and where to find them, as well as your Twitter handle. Well, thank you. My Twitter handle is at JJZ1600 at JJZ1600. And my books, the, the ones that are, are most relevant right now are The Tumultuous Decade, a book I did about uh, the last 10 years of the upheavals across the Middle East and how Arab public opinion views those, those upheavals, how they view American leadership or lack of leadership. Um, it's The Tumultuous Decade. The other one I think that's important is Arab Voices. Um, it's about the previous 10 years of polling, but also talks about the myths that Americans have about Arabs 
and then polls in the Arab world to debunk those myths. Um, uh, Arabs are not all angry. Arabs all don't hate America. Arabs, um, you know, aren't so diverse that you can't look at them as a as a group, um, etc. And um, and then finally, a book called Palestinians: The Invisible. Uh, uh, Palestinians. Invisible victim. Victims, yes, that's it. The Palestinians, <laughs> the invisible victims. You know, I wrote that book 40 years ago, and Mondo Weiss just republished it with me um, because they thought it contained a kind of early history of Israel, um, the Zionist movement in Israel, and the the Palestinians that that needed to be told today. So it's Palestinians, the invisible victims. Yes, that's it. Uh, and uh, those I, three books are the more, most recent ones I think out now that. You can all find them on Amazon or or whatever, uh, and um, I'd be happy to to uh, if people bought them and want to talk about them, they can DM me on Twitter or they can write me at jzogby uh, at aaiusa.org. And lastly, you do a weekly podcast. Uh, sorry, not a podcast, a, a weekly Zoom discussion. Yeah. Um, you did this even before these coronavirus Zoom times. <laughs> if you can tell folks how to well, tune in I, each week to yeah, that. Yeah, th they can, uh, uh, if they write Jay Zogby at AAI USA, uh, we'd be happy to add them to the list and invite them. Um, you know, I used to do a TV show for about 18 years and I loved it. And it was a call-in show and it was so much fun. We ended it in 2011 and I've been writing the weekly column for years and just decided that it'd be nice to be able to talk to people about the issues that I raise every week in the column. This week uh, column is about how anti-Arab and anti-Muslim policies won't end with Trump if he loses because they've been going on for a hundred years. And, um, and even during the Obama years, uh, we had to face real issues of of stereotyping and profiling and uh, um, and negative behavior from law enforcement, surveillance uh, and harassment at borders, et cetera. Um, it, it's a long-term problem that requires a more direct solution. It's not just uh, elect a Democrat and you win. Democrats have been as guilty as anybody at, at, uh, at, at this kind of behavior. So I'd be happy if people wanna write, I'd be happy to, to add them to the list. Thank you. Thanks, Ariel. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for all of the work that you do. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. Thanks so much for joining us this week. This is Code Pink Radio. And you can check out a variety of actions that we have to work towards ending war and creating a society that prioritizes the needs of people and the planet over militarism and destruction at codepink.org. Please also follow us at CodePink on Twitter and find us on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil